Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Gary Steingart's new novel, Lake Success, is the evil doppelganger of the Simon and Garfunkel song, America, in what is surely destined to become one of those legendary novel openings right up there with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, we meet Barry Cohen, a man with $2.4 billion of assets under management in a Greyhound bus terminal at 3.20 a.m., bleeding from his face and drunk on $20,000 of Japanese whiskey. Steingart is one of my favorite writers ever. In the three books I've read, a memoir and two novels, we are sad, basically good-hearted schmoes twisted into balloon animals by an uncaring world. Or wait, the world is made of us, so how good-hearted are we, really? Born in the USSR, Steingart emigrated to Queens as a kid. In his memoir, Little Failure, he describes his first experience of American cereal, quote, it tastes grainy, easy, and light, with a hint of false fruitiness. It tastes the way America feels. It tastes the way America feels. Like Paul Simon in the song, Barry Cohen has walked or stumbled drunkenly off to look for America. By almost any measure, he is a horrible person. He is also a sad, basically good-hearted schmo twisted into a balloon animal by the world. And maybe America is a false, fruity mirror in which the harder you look, the more you end up seeing yourself. Welcome to Think Again, Gary. Great to be here. Thanks. And thanks for enduring my overwrought beginning. No, I loved it. I think I love the balloon animal. (laughs) (laughs) I think what really strikes me about Barry Cohen is that, you know, there are so many reasons that I have to kind of dislike him. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that are dislikable Mm -hmm. about him. Mm -hmm. And yet he has this poignancy that you simply can't dismiss and that you kind of have to say is sort of universal, that everybody, you know, everyone's the protagonist of their own story. Everyone is in a sense, like I was saying, a poor schmo wandering around the world trying to make sense of things. Yeah, being born is a terrible condition. Uh, (laughs) And once you're thrust into the world, it's very hard to make anything good of yourself. And Barry is particular in making something not good of himself. Um, He starts out, he is, he does have that poor schmoiness. His mother dies when he was five uh, in a car accident. His dad is a real jerk. Right. Um, Grows up semi-poor and... Dreams, he's, he's a pretty smart fellow. He gets into Princeton. He dreams of being a writer. But as often happens at Princeton, uh, one gets sucked into the world of finance very quickly. Uh, and he's like, he's a literature major, right? Or yeah, writing, writing. Uh, yeah, sort of writing. Initially. Princeton has a wonderful writing program, and I, I taught there for a little bit. Okay. And so, you know, he, he starts out with the best of intentions and ends up as the worst of people. The writers that he's interested in, there's he's like Hemingway. Fitzgerald. Yeah, he's in that he's in that sort of golden age of, you know, chest-beating uh, American male writers. Right. When I re- look back at that kind of fiction when I was growing up, that was my introduction to America in a big way. Today, people study Fitzgerald in China as a way of sort of, you know, how to become uh, a successful American. And, you know, I think Barry also wants to understand the world a little better. And then he's granted the keys to the kingdom, or at least the way most people think of it. Yeah. He's given access to basically a world where no matter how many times he screws up, people will still give him a lot more money. He's entered this kind of white male pantheon that, you know, that, that, that Fitzgerald in some ways described as well and with the same amount of crookedness. Right. Um, but now he is not just a, a reader of Fitzgerald. In a sense, he's entered that universe and he continues to do horrible things with it. I guess what's so, I don't know, both infuriating and heartbreaking is that I look at him and I see, I just see the way that everybody tries, everybody wants to be a good person. He he keeps going on and on about 
his soul and how he must have a soul. His wife accuses him of not yeah, having a soul. Yeah, or an imagination too. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and but I think that everyone feels like that and that everyone is to varying degrees limited in the way that, that Barry is and their ability to see themselves and what they're doing in the world. Like, yeah, I mean I'll say this that you know that uh I've spent four years or so hanging out with hedge fund managers. Um to be in doing research. In doing for research this. for this book. And and Many of them started out as smart kids. Uh, many of them started out as PhDs or PhD candidates in math or physics or something like right. that. And once uh, once they've achieved uh, financial success, it's like the world tells them, or our society, more to the point, tells them that they're brilliant at anything. You know that there's no end to this. Um, gotcha. So. And so they start to play around with the idea that they're not just hedge fund managers; they're also policy geniuses. Um, who should be in charge of charter schools or, or all these initiatives? So Barry, um, you know, to, because this book is sort of a satire. Barry is doing. <laughs> yeah. Barry's idea is the uh, Urban Watch Fund. He's a watch collector, and he right. wants to. He wants a fund where you know urban kids, poor urban kids, are given their first Rolex and and have to learn how to take care of it. His other idea is you know billion- this happens in the context of him. He he's in Baltimore, yeah, right? In Baltimore. He's and and in the neighborhood where they're doing tourism based on the the watch. Based on the show, The Wire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. So yeah. this idea springs up for him. These kids really need to learn about how to take care of a fine mechanical watch. He, another idea is billionaire trading cards, where you know you have the picture of the billionaire and you have the, their stats on the back. And yeah. he wants to make it diverse, so he'll put Oprah on there. You know, he really wants to. So he has all these ideas which have absolutely <laughs> no connection to reality or, or, or how the world works. And what I wanted to do is, you know, there's many great sort of creative enterprises based around the idea of finance or hedge funds. And what I wanted to do was separate the person in question from their money. And that's why I stuck him on a Greyhound bus right. going across the country. Because otherwise, you know, if you put him in their office, the book becomes about the trading, about the, you know, the decisions they make as finance people. But to me, the more interesting part is how they got there, how happy they are in their current place, yeah. uh, and what happens if all their dreams fail. And the crucial moment, like he decides to throw his unlimited credit card away early on. And like as a reader, I was like, okay, I can't, I just can't, I, I can't. How did he decide to do that? But this is about him just being invisible. He, yes. He's trying to disappear. He's trying to disappear. He wouldn't do it um, yeah, otherwise. Yeah. No, he, he has to do it to, to, you know, it's sort of a plot point to get him. Uh, because but he's running he literally has no money. He, he has no money. He has to <laughs> beg for money and, and that yeah. sort of. Well, and, and, and you know, and, and given the way that uh, the politics of the country have worked, there's a you know, a lot of the hedge fund people I, I've met were, I wouldn't say grift is, is exactly what they were up to, but mm. over the course of their careers, they lost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars right. for their investors while still making a lot of money for themselves. And that became a kind of, once Trump was elected, that became a kind of perfect metaphor for the country from the top down. And so, you know, Barry is... He hates Trump because uh, his his son is autistic, and and Trump makes fun of people with with you know any kind of disability, and and right. so that creates a natural kind of Trump hatred on his part. But he is so much responsible for the um, the basic level of inequality in this country. You know, if you think of all of this stuff as kind of a scheme. Remember the WPA? You know, the scheme sure, to get course, yeah. to get you know jobs in, to, to uh, blue collar people, blue collar workers, etc. The, since I think Reagan, the, it's been a kind of 
opposite kind of the sucking sound, the vacuum sound is, is, is money being sucked out of everyone's pockets and toward this very small group of people. Right. And hedge funders uh, really represent uh, uh, the kind of elite of that crowd, them and um, private equity folks. So there's a critique of the, the man. I mean, he's obviously limited or he wouldn't have been sucked into this world, but there's also the critique of this system that you know, sort of a ready-made fiction for guys like him to plug sure, into. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, there used to be a world where there was never equality, and certainly there was great inequality if you happened to be not white or male, but, you know, people wanted to be, I don't know, the the, the lawyer or the um, yeah. ophthalmologist of their little town. The, the goals were clearly set, and they were geared toward community. And But this takes place in a kind of abstract environment where you don't really interact with anyone. And the people you interact with, I mean, you have competitors. And most of the battle that you wage is a battle to be proven right on, 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 you know, in a matter of basis points on your Bloomberg monitor. And then right. you meet those same people for a poker game afterwards. The competition is endless and the competition is the point. So we're right. all it's being charged. keeping mm-hmm. within that little sure. world. Yeah. So everyone's being charged a tax for something that's basically a game for these people. It's not even, you know, it's not even, it's not a means of, of, of survival for them or, or, or it's, it's just a, a way to prove that they're smarter than other people who have had almost the same educational environment as, as they did. I mean, when you came <laughs> here, you know, you're, you're sort of a product of the, what was left of the American dream at that point in the sense that... Queens is certainly the yeah. destination for so many people from all over the world, yeah. and and you you know you end up at Stuyvesant, and yeah. you know your parents like you you came here with very little, right? We came here with very little, with nothing really. Yeah. But, but you know the the interesting thing is I went to a, a, my Stuyvesant reunion recently, and, and most of those kids were immigrants, and most and not most of them, but many of them are work in finance. So the American dream really got swapped out swapped out for a lot of us as well. You know we. When we were coming up, obviously, being a doctor or a lawyer was considered, you know, the... Right. And, and, and you know, not, I'm not saying all doctors or lawyers are certainly great, but the, that was really swapped out very quickly because in Manhattan, to be a doctor or lawyer these days it, it is to be in, in almost the remnants of the middle class. There's a lot of inequality in, in, in Manhattan that is really based around the idea of either you're very poor or you're very rich. Yeah, things are, I mean, actually not as easy as they once were for doctors or, or lawyers, you know, or at least compared to 99% of the world, they, it is, but, you know, well, they complain constantly sure. about diminishing Well, there's been a war on, on, I think, on, on all of the middle class, right. you know, from the lower middle class to the upper middle class, there's a kind of, there's a serious, I think, there's almost a kind of priesthood around... Um, I mean, what are the sectors that still survived? Finance and tech, right. uh, to some extent, real estate development. You know, those are the those are the big things that that, that move the world. And in the future, they'll be increasingly automated. I think there, there'll be less need for the for many people who are who who do any kind of work, whether physical or intellectual. And we have no ways of dealing with that. I mean, I think Barry represents sort of the. A really misbegotten elite. It's a sort of inverted, twisted dream of finding yourself that is anchored in this this guy that represents where we're at now. Sure, because the American dream has always been, you know, <laughs> you, you, not just to heaps of money, but also um, great contentment. You know, the, not just the pursuit of happiness, the attainment of happiness. Right. Uh, we all have to know who we are and figure everything out um, before we shuffle off our mortal coil. And uh, Barry certainly believes that. He, and, and having a kid on the spectrum for him is this big, it's the first blow of his adult life in the sense that everything's supposed to be perfect for him. He married a woman who has the perfect genetics. She's beautiful. She's right. incredibly smart. Um, she went to Yale Law. She's, you know, she has everything in front of her. And 
he wants her DNA. The first big argument of the book really is between them is about, you know, they're both ashamed of the fact that they have a kid who's on the spectrum and they're right. they're fighting over whose eggs or whose sperm, you know, did this. And he said, you know, he's basically, he basically married her young eggs and then this happened to him. And right. this dream of having the perfect family after having a very imperfect family growing up, his mom died, obviously, his father was a, was a dick. And so, you know, all this um, carries over in, into him fleeing, fleeing his life. And yeah, and it sends him careening off in, in search of something, but essentially learning nothing. Whereas actually, or I, I wouldn't, I don't want to go that far, but I mean, yeah. I don't know... It would be hard to kind of tabulate yeah. how much he learned. You, you know, know the, 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 <laughs> there's no spreadsheet that can uh, tell us how much he learned. Uh, you know, I think, remember what was that? The Seinfeld stuff was, you know, no hugs, no, no learning or something like that. Yeah, the, yeah. the characters didn't really learn anything by the end. I mean, I, I, I both agree and disagree with that a little bit. Well, maybe not the hug He has part. a couple of hugs. Uh, he has a couple of hugs. But the, in, terms of, in, terms of, in terms of learning, I think, we learn stuff and then we either forget it or it gets pushed back into the back of our minds, and we just return to the people we were over and over and over again. You believe that there's no, like, people don't grow, really? Most people don't grow. I mean, I think if, you're, if, if there is growth, it's, it's some kind of luck, some kind of unbelievable combination yeah. of the genetic propensity to grow or, or, and combined with lucky circumstances, the, the rare good psychiatrist, you know, just a bunch of things that happen to click into place. Yeah, I was wondering that about you, like, you know, li living as being who you are and living as you do at this moment in America, where, as you said earlier, personal growth is always a kind of American dream. It's but, an industry. But right now, it's an industry on a scale like we have sure. never seen before with the meditation apps and so on. Yeah. Like, has any of that infected your life? Have you been ever I, sucked into no, any of those No, I, I do some headspace every yeah, once in a while, yeah, um, yeah. but I don't do it regularly. Um, I find that it doesn't really offer that much stability. I mean, I think the reason these apps exist is because the iPhone exists. Uh, I mean, the reason meditation exists is because the iPhone exists, because mm. um, they have so profoundly changed our conception of who we are. You know, we're now cyborgs on call constantly to, to powers greater than ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're always, there's always a ping and then you have to react. Pavlovian style. Are you like deleting half your apps? Are you, I know you go to like writer's colonies sometimes, or you have done in the past to like yeah. isolate yourself. But. Well, I go upstate a lot, but you know, the phone follows you there. It used to be that the phone didn't, wouldn't work there, but now it works <laughs> everywhere. Over the summer, I, I jumped into a pool by accident with my phone in my pocket, phone died, and I spent weeks just loving life because I could, I just noticed things. I noticed my friends, I noticed my environment. It was right. Quite lovely, but and it was fleeting. And then got a new phone. I got a new phone, <laughs> and then um, and I said to myself, "This is part of the not learning stuff." I said to myself, "Well, this is things are going to be different now. I've seen the promised land. I've seen what happens when I can focus on yeah, yeah. the personal and or the, the beautiful place where I live and all this stuff." And yeah, for a couple of days, I, I, I stuck to a much better regimen. I didn't reach for my phone, and then it just slowly but surely invaded and and conquered. Oh. Speaking of personal growth, so you were a Republican until through Stuyvesant or until... Yeah, Stuyvesant was where I was switching out. And by the time I got to Oberlin College, of course, there was no room for Republicanism at all. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, so, and was all of that, do you feel like that was, that whole thing was just anchored in 
like your relationship with your dad and and and, and well, most Soviet Jews Soviet, were were, were okay. quite were quite Republican, I would say. Um, you know, and a lot of I think a lot of people who come from communist societies, Cuba is another example. Um, right, you're brought up to. You know, I mean, your parents obviously hate that world and. The Republicans successfully aligned themselves as the anti-communists, and whereas you know, for okay. growing up, you know, the, the Democrats seemed like all you know. We were, I mean, I still have relatives who believe that Obama was a socialist, you know, <laughs> even though he makes God knows how much from speaking fees, you know. Right. You know, I want to I, I want to talk to you about your relationship with writing at this point. How you how you find an idea for a new novel? Do you have are you do you have a big long train of things that you know you want to write or are they Well, I, I mean, I'm at heart a dystopian and and we are living in such dystopian times that yeah. that you know that the problem almost is saying no to ideas. Yeah, I mean super I'm sure you've heard a million times that super sad true love story was ridiculously prescient. Probably. You know, the, I haven't yet seen the Totally translucent jeans. Ah, they're when out there. I saw the when I uh, saw the like cutting the jeans off, uh, you know, halfway up the yeah. the butt, like yeah. I thought of you. There are some versions of the translucent jeans. <laughs> okay. I think I believe in France, which would uh, sort of makes make sense. sense. <laughs> um, and you know, the what disturbs me about Super Sad now is just the scale, the time scale. So when I started writing that in two thousand six. And then, you know, I thought that I was writing about 30 years into the future, you know, mm. crypto-fascist regime run by social media. That stuff was just getting started. Right. Um, but it took, what, 10 years, less. You know, the book was 2010, 2016. Yeah. We had a certain election. So we're living on steroids. The future is on steroids. The present's <laughs> on steroids. There's no future left. <laughs> what you do that nobody else does, and this is why I love your work so much, is that, and I, I hear this in your memoir as well, like you're a romantic in some ways. I mean, you are loving, you know, you, there's a lot of love, like yeah. for a lot of detail of the mm-hmm. of the world for dreams for desires for the individual you like caught in this this matrix mm-hmm. but you navigate through this you know very black humor very mm-hmm. very harsh kind of mm-hmm. landscape it, you know some of the stuff you write about in little failure that happened to you mm-hmm. and it's so brutal like just just everyday stuff that's yeah, very sure. very brutal but, but you somehow are balancing all of those things you know without it becoming heartless on the one hand or yeah it's a very difficult I, mean, I think for many I think for most inhabitants for most human inhabitants of the planet and maybe even non-human but certainly for most human inhabitants there's a there's a kind of brutality to life you know that that from all sides from family from society um, from what we've done to the environment as the you know as, as the, the climate fights back yeah, there's yeah. this constant feeling of you know that 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 things are falling apart, but there's also a collection of sort of moments of, of grace, you know, um, and that's what you're, could be described as romantic. But, you know, as I said, just to go back to that iPhone loss, you know, that was, that was the longest string of moments of grace that I've experienced was when mm. I wasn't connected to the world. Because there's a kind of, you know, Instagrammable quality to life now where you see something beautiful, you take a photo of it, you write something stupid about it, and you post it. But that moment of interaction with the, the initial moment is gone. Yeah. You know, you're just pleasing an audience. But then that becomes, when you put that into the aggregate, you have all these people doing that. Pleasing an audience becomes an imperative for the whole society. Right. And so, and th- this is when the awful choices, the sort of Trump-Kanye axis really takes over, <laughs> you know. And this is, um, this is where we are now. We're a collection of people hunting for, for something important to say, some great memento of ourselves to share with others. 
but our inner lives are stunted. And that's been the case with Super Sad True Love Story, and that's and that kind of rides its way through Lake Success as well. And do you think opting out is just not an option, really? I tried, I tried. I think, especially among younger people, there is a... By the way, I think older people are some of the greater consumers of, of this kind of technology. Younger people, I think, are trying to find a way out of this, but it's very hard because the whole society is monetized around their participation. I feel like we're in a time of war, that every time I go online, I feel mm. like we're in a time of war. And in a time of war, their subtlety is kind of out the window. It's basically like, make a choice. What side are you on? Take a stand every second mm -hmm. of every day. Mm -hmm. And for a person who kind of like thinks and feels, which I'm not saying other people don't, it's a difficult spot to like constantly having having to choose sides. It's a know? weird thing because you're you know you're fighting one on one side of the war, but the war also exists just for the war's sake. To put it in 1984 Orwellian terms, you know you're feeding a machine. You're or feeding something. the machine. I mean, your posts both are important in the sense that they refute some untruths, but they're also a part of the system that that needs the system only works with your participation too. So it's it's a very, <laughs> I mean, they figured out a way that you're screwed if you do, screwed if you don't, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so we're online. I mean, you know, we're we're speaking to mostly to our to our, our fellow compatriots. It's important for us to point this stuff out, but we're not convincing anyone. This isn't really a, a debate. Yeah, I mean, remind me the so the apparatchik, which was the device, the apparat, in, yeah. uh, apparat it mm -hmm. was called, not apparatchik, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 device in Super Sad True Love Story that everyone is wearing, which is sort of like a tamagotchi kind mm -hmm. of thing around your neck, mm -hmm. but like it's broadcasting net worth. Yeah, it's also broadcasting. Like, is there some sort of like score of fuckability? Yeah, fuckability. Yeah. Right, how right, fuckable right. you are. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Which and then Black Mirror kind of picked. Did, did you see that episode? I didn't see it, but I, I heard about it. Yeah. So they have an episode where everyone's got a score that's constantly being broadcast. Hmm. Which interesting. Yeah. 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 And uh, and uh, you know, long after you wrote that, and I mean, we're not quite doing that yet but like I don't quite know why not like I'm not sure why I'm not sure you know what the barrier is yet to to yeah. just posting some number sure sure know, the like big one is <laughs> you know, China's working on this a lot and they're they're developing a score that monitors you know like your patriotism online but then that becomes gets translated into how much you pay for your mortgage stuff like that okay so it, it incentivizes people to be more patriotic more conformist and there's a, and there's a score attached so everything's you know um, quantified and then um, it spits out um your life chances change because of that much as they do in super sad right know? right I often think that the credit score is a sort of like the credit score sure. hidden yeah. dystopic tool oh, of, of course, control of course. Like, <laughs> Of course. And the credit score, you know, interesting, you know, you're kind of almost born into a credit score. Right? right. Your life chances in the beginning determine your credit score in many ways. It's not life chances opposed to life choices. You know? mm. Yeah, there's definitely something very dystopian about it. And, and you know, there's, there's already, there's, I think, on dating apps, you can choose to only date somebody with a certain credit score. I mean, in my own family, the way this has played out, there was the generation of like my 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 dad's parents are like Russian and Lithuanian mm -hmm. Jews, and my mom's parents are Italian. And I guess my dad's parents immigrated here. Mom's parents, maybe their parents, came here. But basically, the way it worked was first generation scrabbling super hard. Next generation, you got to be a doctor mm -hmm. or a lawyer. My mm -hmm. parents were both. Both went to medical school. Sure. And then in my generation, 
you know, there was sort of a sense of like, you could do whatever you want. That was the idea. Like, and, and so, you know, the sorts of things I aspired to do were like art, you know, sure. make, make uh, art and conversation. The world is sort of shutting down in that way, mm -hmm. or at least America is shutting down in that way. But you're kind of living that dream. You're able to do, you're able to do that vanishing profession of yeah no I certainly count myself lucky in that respect but also the the system you described is a you know a wonderful indication of why immigration is so important because you you kind of do need that three generation or more cycle um, right you need people to come here you need to work their asses off and the next generation works their asses off and yeah somebody in the end claims a genetic reward and says ah the hell with it you know I'm gonna right right uh, I'm gonna write for a living or, some, or unless, something. Yeah. Unless, unfortunately, the whole game is rigged by hedge fund managers that make it impossible sure, to do sure. anything. No, but, I'm yeah, just talking about fund. the very yeah, best, yeah, yeah, best, yeah, best yeah, of worlds. Yeah, and, certainly, yeah. and, and the world that I've experienced. And so, I mean, I almost jumped the shark a little bit by being the, instead of the third generation, being the second generation to opt out of of the dreams that my parents had for me. And that was really, you know, the, the big source of friction in my family was the idea that I said no to this. And it was very clear that I wasn't supposed to. And also opting out of being a, a conservative, you know, which mm -hmm. is, which was also almost felt like the, you have to work hard and you also have to espouse the values that we grew up with. How could you say no to all of them? Are your parents both still around? Mm -hmm. sure. and, and how's the situation now? Are it's they fine. Like, I do mean, they like you know, what you do? And uh, I think they're okay with it, you know, as long as I'm, <laughs> as long as I'm solvent. Um, <laughs> they're doing their thing, you do your yeah. thing, you visit. Sure, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's about the, the right pattern, yeah. Okay, I think this is a good place to go to the sure. second part of the show where cool. we're going to watch these surprise videos mm. and uh, see where they take us. Okay. All right. So I have not seen these clips and Gary hasn't either. Um, this is Anand Jirid Haradas, who is the author of True American and India Calling. And the video is called Corporate Responsibility, Don't Make Me Laugh. You know, corporate Social Responsibility, or CSR, is everywhere. Which company now doesn't have CSR? Uh, all the major banks that, that screwed America in the financial crisis and the world that sold out our economy and, and tried to make a killing um, selling toxic mortgage products and didn't, didn't come clean to the American people or regulators about what was going on, paid billions of dollars in fines for fraud. Um, almost all those banks, like most American companies, have CSR departments. And they'll go and they'll do some, you know, they'll, they'll have shovels, they'll do something with shovels, uh, they'll do something with some poor country, they'll go to some community, and they'll even teach like a financial literacy class. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't fall prey to, to financial fraud of the kind that we perpetrated. Um, this whole idea that you can sell kids poisonous drinks that give them diabetes while making a playground, that you can build a, the Dakota Pipeline or invest in the Dakota Pipeline while sponsoring a climate change gathering with your CSR, that you can you know, push for a healthcare system that only gives people benefits if they work 30 hours a week, thus tempting many employers to only employ people 29 hours a week, and then say you're in the, in the business of empowering workers or being you know, the best first job in America or whatever. You know, the reality is many, many companies are trying to fight on both sides of a war. 
in their main operation, in their lobbying activities, they are pushing for an America that is merciless. And then, understanding the need to brand themselves, understanding the need to you know, soothe a little bit of the public anger in this age of rage, they give a little back. They throw some scraps at us. Um, and what is so sad is that all too often it works. Yeah, no, it's, an, it's, it's very true. Uh, I, I would go further than that and say that a lot of the people I've met in finance and almost all branches of it, right. they really think they're, they're the smartest people in the world. Uh, they think academics, economists uh, are just, because they haven't succeeded in bilking millions, billions of dollars out of others, that they're just not that smart. They're not wise to the game. Um, Smart equals successful in financial terms. But also knowing how to take money from others. Uh That's the really big part of this. If you don't know how to take money from others, then you're not smart. And our society keeps saying the same thing. Hey, you know, you're a grifter. We love you. You The grifter is an American icon. Yeah, um, yeah, we elected one, you know. Right. So, and the liberal arts professor in his shabby suit isn't looking so, you know, the optics aren't so great. Almost you know, anybody who doesn't, <laughs> almost anybody who operates by the system, by by the rules that we think we operate by, is a fool. And the other myth is, I work hard at grifting, therefore I deserve all these rewards. Mm-hmm. I, I met a woman who was so young. So uh, also either, I think the daughter of immigrants, possibly, possibly, yeah, I think an immigrant herself. And she was talking about Occupy Wall Street and she was talking about how, and she works for a big bank and, and, and she said, but I'd have to step over these people on the way to work during Occupy Wall Street. And I just wanted to tell them, do you know how hard I work? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm up here seven in the morning, you're getting stoned. I, I'm working. You know, yeah, yeah. I work 20 hour days. That goes back, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, but that goes back to something I've thought about a lot, you know, which is the idea of hard work as a value in and of itself. Like, I think that hard work is, is, is a neutral thing. It's good if you work hard at something good, but like simply not sleeping and working 20 hour days is not inherently, there's no moral. But that's the myth we've been teaching ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, technology plays a huge role in this because technology is always on, always asking for your input and output. We've fallen for these two myths. One, the myth that um, that wealth equals virtue and uh, a lack of wealth being poor is a kind of almost moral failing. Right. You know, And I felt that all along growing up in America. When we were poor, it didn't just feel like we were poor, you know, in our house, we didn't have certain items that others did. It was a, a moral failing in front of others. And that's a two-way street, right? The culture is judging you, and probably your parents are, and you as well as a child, are trying to mask or in some Yes, way and one of the main ways to do that was racism, because growing right. up in a group of poor but, but striving white immigrants, you know, the idea was always, well... You know, Ronald Reagan said it best, welfare queens, that's mm-hmm. who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's who these people are. So we'll always be one step above them. Right. And we kept eating that pie for as long as we could. And, and I think many still continue to, even after they've, quote unquote, made it. Have your folks grown out of that? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I, 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 I can't speak curious. for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But they definitely watch the kind of media that, that, that supports that, uh-huh. that uh-huh. phenomena. I'm less interested in traditional vertical mega corporations, you know, throwing scraps to corporate social responsibility, mm-hmm. more interested in how that plays out in Silicon Valley, which mm-hmm. where it feels like a lot of the sure. real power is now. Well, and this yeah. idea that somehow mm-hmm. 
you know, there are good people out there that might be trying to make a better world, which I'm very skeptical of on every level. Not just skeptical, I mean cynical, I would say. There's a, there's like, a correlation <laughs> between finance and tech, for sure. You know, um, yeah. yes, tech is definitely winning and, and even taking over finance in some ways, like the, the you know, fintech, which is this new entity, uh, this new idea. Um, right, but like I, AI's I, trading and sure, stuff. Yeah, sure, yeah. and I had a friend who left Facebook because he thought it was just such an evil place, but was applying at Goldman. So, you know, there's definitely a continuum there. You know, people will say, look, you know, technology does great things in, in, in impoverished countries. And, and I, I, I imagine that's possibly true. You know, the, putting in cell phones where, where, you know, there are no landlines, etc. Right. Right. I'm sure there are positive effects. But I, I would say uh, uh, for the planet as a whole, the, the last decade, the real decade of the growth of this kind of technology has been tumultuous, uh, has exacerbated inequality for so many of us. For me, the big problem is also the just the opacity, the scale and the opacity. Like the, the bigger the platforms get, the more influential they they are. It's like whatever good you might be doing, people are, the average person is farther and farther away from having any real control over their world. Well, because everything, you know, everything is judged equal. Um, all sources of information on your feed uh, it creates for the culture of untruth. You know, there's almost no, there's no value system saying an untruth is worse than a truth. And once that happens, the road to fascism, I think, is, is really quick. I mean, can you imagine that four years ago we would be where we are? No, I can't. I mean, every every day I wake up and I look at it. And yeah, and it's just, yeah, I grew up with the remnants of the fragment of the idea. Like, I, I believe, you know, my father knows American history. I have a, I have a belief in, like, some of the basic foundational <laughs> principles of America, the idea of freedom of speech. You know, and there's a lot that I didn't see growing up as well, of course, about like our mm -hmm. CIA operations abroad and so on, because we kept, we kind of out, we kept all, a lot of the ugliness mm -hmm. either outside of the borders or outside of the communities I lived in, you know. But I think a lot of people who support Trump don't believe in the freedom of speech, you know, and I think polls show that. Trump now talks about banning certain dem demonstrations in D.C. Protests, protests yeah. you know. Um, and they would be perfectly fine with that. And there's a whole apparatus that just embraces that. And it's a, it's a global phenomenon. You know, it's everywhere the tide is turning. Brazil is about to elect, uh, really, somebody who basically admits to being a fascist, who pines for the days of Brazil's military dictatorship from in the 60s to the 80s. Right, um, right. You know, again, two, three years ago, would it have been possible for someone to win with those credentials? Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me, I don't know if this Pollyanna-ish or whatever, but I want to look at like the scope of history and say that like you get into really crappy times and yeah. then things change, you know, like, I don't know how they're supposed to change. I don't have any brilliant ideas, but, and maybe it's true that this dystopian terror that I feel at seeing these giant platforms, which look to me like they're locking things down in a way that like, it's going to be hard to change them. Maybe that's, maybe that's true, but maybe it's not. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I think, I, I do believe there are cycles, but fascism is like a virus, you know, and it keeps trying to figure out a new way to penetrate the host. Mm. And the initial sort of gigantic Holocaust scale projects obviously are not going to work in 2018. Right. How do you get, how do you get around that? And instead of imposing, you know, a lack of freedom of speech, what can you do to create the idea that speech exists, but at the same time infiltrate the very idea of what truth is? This is a little bit like going back to that thing about, you know, 
anyone who doesn't know how to extract money from other people is stupid. I mean, the bad guys, they often have the death star, you know, they often, whereas the like, the people on the other side of fascism, mm -hmm. it can be difficult to organize at scale, it can be difficult to to speak and act as definitively as fascism likes to. I mean, fascism is now um, a means to an end. The end isn't even ideologically fascistic. It, 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 the means, the end is stealing money from people. I mean, right. uh, you know, uh, Trump admires Putin, I think, because Putin is so good at this. He is, by some measures, the wealthiest man in the world. Um, right. Whereas Trump has always been a failure at this. He's even been a failure at this aspect of it. You know? <laughs> right. So the aim, the, is the, the aim is oligarchy. The aim is oligarchy, but the path is is, is this kind of right-wing um, ideology. But there's no question. I mean, Trump has gone out and say, said that he thinks Republicans are idiots. You know, before his current incarnation, he knows mm -hmm. that they're gullible. Let's uh, let's see what the next video is, huh? Okay. Let's see where we go sure. from here. So, all right. <laughs> This is uh, Robin D'Angelo is the speaker, and it is called Why I'm Not Racist is Only Half the Story. All systems of oppression are highly adaptive, and they can adapt to challenges and incorporate them. They can allow for exceptions. And I think the most effective adaptation of the system of racism to the challenges of the civil rights movement was to reduce a racist to a very simple formula. A racist is an individual, always an individual, not a system, who consciously does not like people based on race, must be conscious, and who intentionally seeks to be mean to them. Individual conscious intent. And if that is my definition of a racist, then your suggestion that anything I've said or done is racist or has a racist impact, I'm gonna hear that as you just said I was a bad person. You just put me over there in that category. And most of my bias anyway is unconscious. So I, I, I'm not intending, I'm not aware. Uh, so now I'm going to need to defend my moral character, and, and I will, and we've all seen it. It seems to be virtually impossible, based on that definition, for the average white person to look deeply at their socialization, to look at the inevitability of internalizing racist biases, developing racist patterns, and having investments in the system of racism, which is pretty comfortable for us and serves us really well. I think that definition of a racist, that either or, what I call the good-bad binary, is the root of virtually all white defensiveness on this topic. Because it makes it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about the inevitable absorption of a racist worldview that we get by being literally swimming in racist water. So let me connect that to myself. As a result of being raised as a white person in this society, I have a racist worldview. I have deep racist biases. I have developed racist patterns. And I have investments in the system of racism because it's, it's served me really well. It's comfortable. It's helped me overcome the, uh, the barriers that I do face. And I also have an investment in not seeing any of that for what it would suggest to me about my identity and what it would require of me. Right? I didn't choose any of that. I don't feel guilty about it. It is an inevitable result of being raised in this society in which racism is the bedrock. The question of guilt comes in, in what am I doing about that? 
while we who are white tend to be fragile in that it doesn't take much to upset us around race, the impact of our response is not fragile at all. It's a kind of weaponized defensiveness, weaponized hurt feelings, right? And it functions really, really effectively to repel the challenge. You know, as a white person, I move through the world racially comfortable virtually 24 seven. It is exceptional for me to be outside of my racial comfort zone. And most of my life, I've been warned not to go outside my racial comfort zone. And so on the rare occasion when I am uncomfortable racially, it's, it's a kind of throwing off of my racial equilibrium. And I need to get back into that. And so I will do whatever it takes to repel the challenge and get back into it. The investment uh, part of it is interesting. You know, um, we are so intertwined with a system that perpetuates racism at every level. Right. And then a lot of it is corporate. I just went to a bank, took money out of it. That bank has redlined African-American clients, has, um, you know, has throughout its existence exuded racism. Right. That bank makes money off me, but I also, you know, that's where I store my money. You're complicit, right? yeah, as a, in that sense. Barry Cohen in, in Lake Success constantly talks about how he's socially liberal. He's cons fiscally conservative, but he's socially liberal. But the truth of it is that that fiscal conservatism is an attempt to turn away from, I mean, you know, if you ask Barry if he was racist, he'd say, no, I'm married to an Indian woman, you know. Uh, well, one of the saddest moments for me is this uh, sort of liaison he has with, with Brooklyn, mm -hmm. this black woman he meets on a, on the bus yeah. uh, in what which state I forget in, in the Mississippi, South, in Mississippi. Yeah. and I, that's supposed to be some kind of absolution for him on all kinds of levels you know and I feel like it there is some I can't recall whether it's overt or covert but racial healing aspect of that as sure. well. I mean, he know? looks at this as an opportunity in the same way that people, you know, that some of the hedge fund people I've met look at, you know, charter schools for, for African-American kids as, as their, both a form of absolution, but also a statement that they're not really racist, even though they participate right. in this racist system, uh, even though they contribute to the inequality, which affects African-Americans a lot more than it affects white people. But in doing this, they're, they're, they're doing two things. They're proving they're brilliant because they're going to save all these poor kids from a horrifying fate, right. and also proves that they're not racist at all, even as they participate in this very racist system. It's noblesse oblige. It's noblesse oblige. Yeah. And so what happens, I think, for Barry is that first he sees this African-American woman to whom he's very attracted. He actually goes out with her. And first he has this great savior complex. Now he's going to save her life. He's going to give her all these things. He's going to take her on a private jet. Everything's going to happen for this, for this woman. But there was a second in there where... For a second, he believes that she actually steals something from him, his very precious watch collection, which right, is taken on the road. Right, right, right. And it takes three seconds for him to go from noblesse oblige to pure racism, which he, which then, of course, scares the crap out of him because he realizes that not only didn't she steal anything from him, but she was actually, without giving too much away, but she was actually protecting his property. Right. So then he quickly turns around and, and tries to reform. You know, he's like a out-of-control computer constantly adjusting his well fragility to quote the you know to quote the yeah yeah the clip that we saw but at the same time the racism is so apparent and inherent in everything he does including the noblesse oblige but what makes it so real and so heartbreaking is the is the sort of like the twisted good intentions that are just constantly operating the attempt the 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 crazy backflips to try to make well, sense and try to adjust you, and, you know, try to... You know, many of the people that cause the most harm are people who come in with, quote-unquote, good intentions. And not everyone's a Trump who goes on stage and says, you know, 
I, I hate Mexicans, you know. And, you know, going back to uh, Little Failure, like you... You know, you talked about some things that were very poignant for me. Like I went to I went to an all boys school and there was very much it was a very brutal place. And, you know, I was sort of a small, squirrely kind of kid. And when I became a senior, you got a senior table that you you know, that was your lunch table. And then the little you had freshmen. Mm -hmm. right? And I was just as horrible to oh, them yeah. as yeah. those seniors had been to me. And you tell these stories about yeah. reciting uh, the interrogation scenes from, from 1984. Yeah. <laughs> to this poor, poor yeah, recent yeah, Russian yeah. immigrant. Yeah. No, we're, you know, look, we're, this is what we're taught as boys. First you're beaten, then you beat, you know. The system exists to perpetuate itself. It's almost like a computer code. And if anyone, if anyone opts out of the system and says, I'm not going to participate in cruelty or racism, the system doesn't like that. The system seeks to punish those who deviate from it. In many ways, this last election was the revenge of the system. I think that words like fragility and words like racism are very tricky and very slippery. And I think that like, I mean, like in the sort of Orwellian sense, if you say that all of you people are operating unconsciously as agents of something that you don't mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm. Let me say this. I admit systemic racism. Yeah. I definitely understand white sure. privilege. But if you create a, an Aurelian world in which everyone is racist and doesn't know they're racist, and someone comes along and says, the way you drank that water glass is racist, mm. I have, there's nothing, absolutely nothing mm -hmm. I can say, which is not to say that we're in danger of that on any mass scale, but I, it's mm -hmm. just kind of a crazy mindfuck. I think we're just starting this, this whole discussion you know, I think this is, you know, watching that video is certainly, and, and I've read, I think I've read her work, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I think this is an interesting back and forth where, which is going to go on for a while, but the importance is to have the conversation, not just pretend sure. like these things don't exist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the importance is to figure out ways and then where do we move on as a culture? You know, what do we do to make sure that we're never going to live in a perfect world, but that some part of this disappears. Right. And, and a lot of this has to start from the top. You know, yeah, banks yeah. are still white male dominated yeah, to a yeah, huge, yeah. huge extent. And uh, as long as that continues, and especially, I mean, the gender balance is absolutely shocking still and, and at the higher levels. Right. You know. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know, some ridiculously small percentage of CEOs are female. Hedge funds are incredible in this direction. You know, you, you'll meet so few female hedge fund managers. Women are shunted toward investor relations. Not to overgeneralize, but in part maybe because those cultures are, are, are so toxic and testosterone driven that Ooh, sure. women, the vast majority of women don't want to be part of them too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Not Absolutely. that they'd be welcome, yeah. but yeah. Absolutely, no, people know. I mean, people don't make stupid decisions, you know, and, <laughs> and, and where they choose to work. But uh, as long as these, and tech of course is another huge oh. offender in this, you know, as long as this bro culture continues right. across the board, there's not going to be any progress. There's only going to be regression. In writing this book or in researching this book, you traveled on, on Greyhound buses in the, in the same path that yeah. Barry takes? Four months on the Hound, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. What did you learn? Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that taking the hound is a great idea. I mean, I think it's um, certainly a traumatic form of transportation in some ways, but you learn a lot about the rest of the country. You know, we're so siloed, I think. Did you talk to like people sure, on the bus all the time? Sure. Or? I had the strategy where I would make sure I sat next to a working outlet and inevitably people's outlets didn't work and they would, you know, asked to borrow mine, I'd start talking. I'm, I'm pretty shy myself, so mm -hmm. I needed a kind of ruse. To, so <laughs> I'd get to the station first, try to get on the, on the bus, make sure I got a nice working outlet. 
Um, in the deep south, did you encounter anything like there was that that interesting moment on the bus yeah. where it's like, what is your nationality? It wasn't that- quite that, but there were people talking about crucifying Muslims and Jews and, and, uh-huh. and talking about an African-American college we passed, saying very derogatory things about the students and uh-huh. talking very loudly and racistly in a bus that was a majority people of color. I mean, that... That kind of captures 2016 in a way, too. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And none of us dared to do anything. We all knew our place. The Greyhound is a, a form where you, of transport where you kind of know your place. There's a bus driver in front who's always yelling right. at you, telling you to watch your language. Or right, not, it's a fascist uh, regime. Like it's a, a, it's a militaristic regime, okay, I'll say right, that. Right, okay. I'll say that. And, and many people have been in the military, and, and some people have been in correctional facilities. So there's, a, you know, there's always a mix of people who understand that there are laws and that they're not on top of things, that they're, you know, buck privates, they're not the generals. You know, what do you think about this in terms of, you know, after the election, uh, many of, I I just hate this idea about this liberal elite, whatever Mm -hmm. class I'm meant to be a Mm -hmm. part of, shocked and amazed that all these people in America think the way that they do, you know, and thinking, oh, we have to go out, there has to be some way to bridge this divide. In your writing on the Greyhound, do you think that there's any sense, I mean, that anything is to be achieved by, like, going and talking and whatever? I mean, I think it's important to know what people think, because, and and, and that's been coming out, but but it's important to know what people think. And, you know, the, the other thing is, people have always thought these things. In the last couple of years, the only thing that's changed is that they can get up and de- and declaim very loudly. And, and the people who were talking on the bus were quoting Breitbart. It was one of the first times I've heard Breitbart quoted, mm. talking about that, talking about you know Mike Pence. It was clearly tied in with this new movement, which is an old movement. You know, it's, right, it's, right, it's right, just right, right. that now it's it's been empowered in a way that we thought wouldn't be empowered anymore. And what I saw was that the people on the bus might be the people in the government, far wealthier, of course, but their ideas were very similar. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that I have, I nurture this, like still have this, I think, naive hope that you could just sit down and talk to people and there should be some way of reaching some understanding. But but there are certain things, certain divides that just seem too, too big to bridge, you know? You know, <laughs> if each one of these people actually lived next to a, an immigrant from one of the countries that Trump decries right, 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 and got right, to know them. Right, right. So, you know, we're talking about uh, the WPA project here is to get every racist uh, <laughs> a Somalian a foster, yeah, uh, right, uh, right. Yeah, or, or, you know, yeah, somebody that they could, that they could. Some situation where they're, they're stuck with somebody very different from them, but uh, on equal footing, not, not, not where they're the, the foster parent. Yeah. Or something, you know? Yeah. That would probably be it. I mean, look, <laughs> you know, the, the, Research has shown that many of the people who voted for for this don't live in near anyone who's different from them. These are very monolithic communities. Maybe the project is to have their children marry those <laughs> people. <laughs> that worked in my family. That's how the oh, yeah. the, 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 uh, the Italian Catholics learned uh, to be okay with Jews, you know? That stuff always works for me. I'm, I'm all for it, yeah. Gary Steingart, I've, I've really enjoyed talking Likewise. to you. This has been fun. And um, Gary's new book is Lake Success, and it is available everywhere now. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Think Again. I've been wanting to talk to Gary Steingart for years now, since Super Sad True Love Story came out. And it finally happened. The best stuff's always a long game, isn't it? If your brain is on fire with a question or a comment, you want to say anything about anything you've heard on this show, or you just want to share any idea at all with me, I'd love it if you could do this. 
Record a quick voice memo on your phone and email it to me at jason at bigthink.com. And let me know in the email if you're okay with my responding to it on air. That's jason at bigthink.com. See you next week with something completely different.